The I Don't Know Much podcast is pleased to feature a mini-series titled Bad Faith Cycles in Algorithmic Cultivation by Calvin Hillis. It is a seven-episode interview-based podcast series that, in brief, explores identity and agency with the goal of providing I Don't Know Much listeners with an understanding of surveillance in digital space. It's way more than this, so stay tuned as we release weekly episodes of this mini-series on top of our typical episodes. For a precursor and small introduction to this topic, listen to the episode, but I do know if your phone is listening to you with the author of this mini-series, Calvin Ellis. Okay, I hope you enjoy this series as much as I did. Bye! Today I'm speaking with Dr. Alan Sears. Alan is the Chair of Sociology at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada. Alan can speak with authority on a lot of these topics that help build the concept of bad faith cycles. And for all these reasons, I'm really grateful that he was able to make time and speak with me. I think that our conversation is really fruitful to building the discourse around the concept of bad faith cycles, because me and Alan have disagreements on some of these ideas. I hope that you get something out of this conversation. Enjoy. Sure, yeah. Whatever, and uh, if I'm being too verbose or whatever, just tell me and I'll try to pump it up. So, Alan, I'm wondering if you can speak to us about what symbolic interactionism is. So, symbolic interactionism is a theoretical school in sociology that developed to talk about the ways that people create a reality through a shared culture of meaning. And so, it's really about how the world exists to us always through the names that we give to things and through the ways that we organize things conceptually. And what's otherwise meaningless or has its own existence or whatever is only available to us through these shared names, symbols, and so on. And that that's at the core of human experience. And symbolic interactionists in their classic form are fairly hard on that point to the extent that they say we really don't have access to the world outside of our meanings, that all we do is recirculate meanings, and what happens outside of that really is not available to us in the same much. Agency, let's get into that a little bit. What is agency? Uh, so that's our ability to be world makers or history makers or whatever language we use about that, and it really comes down to the question about whether people are the makers of the world that they participate in or whether we enter a pre-existing set with to a large extent a pre-existing script and that's a major debate in sociology and an ongoing one and i'm very personally high on the agency side i think that what we're looking at is freedom meaning enhancing agency, though I think that that, the complicated thing about that is the way that it is both individual and collective. It's not simply an individual attribute, but it's something that we need to do together in a lot of ways. 
but it's really about our ability to make the world that we want and need as opposed to being constrained by the circumstances that we inherit. And it raises the question, like what can change and what can't? Because obviously certain things, agency doesn't mean that I can suddenly say, I, I will fly and so on. So gravity still exists despite my agency and my agency has to take gravity into account. So insofar as I can fly, it's about developing mechanisms that take gravity into account. Um, and so agency isn't simply about wishing the world that we want, um, but it's about transforming the world that we have. And they're all in different ways about people acting to make the world that they want and need rather than simply accepting the world that they're inheriting. I've read that agency can be described as the total range of potential actions or rather the sum of the total range of potential actions that a person can make at any given point, but overall for their life, the range of choices and then exercising agency, expressing agency is about making it a, uh, making a decision within that range. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm thinking about how systems of classification are occurring in digital spaces right now through algorithmic profiling, algorithmic sorting. And I'm thinking about how the personalized experience of personalized content algorithms is sorting people into their own little reality pockets. How might algorithmic sorting be maintaining the status quo of dominant groups? One of the things that we are taught in this society is to measure ourselves against each other and to look for metrics. And these behaviors, these don't start in digital space, but are actually things that we are taught, for example, in schools. And if you look at the way people use digital space, a lot of that has to do with metrics and being measured and putting yourself out there in a way that you think that the measurement is gonna be as desirable as possible. And so that ethos transports itself into digital space and gets intensified there. And then there's a second kind of metrics, uh, which is the way that your digital experience is curated um, by algorithms and that's based on all kinds of calculations at a massive level that show patterns. And so what we're what would happen through that kind of algorithmic process is that we are confined to the patterns that the algorithm is discovering. And rather than agency our behavior is mapped according to certain patterns. And they're somewhat more dynamic patterns because it's masses of data than some of the simpler patterns that might be there. But nonetheless, it is mapping us according to patterns. And there are all kinds of ways that, for example, 
statistically larger groups become more normative in these patterns. And so less uh, that, that others who have different patterns don't get picked up and get treated according to the patterns of statistically larger groups and so on. So all in all, it means that the world is presented to us not as we explore it, but according to particular patterns. So I'm thinking about how algorithmic sorting of information and personalized content streams reduces an individual's agency, at least when they're operating in the digital space, because the range of information, the range of content has been predetermined. An incident that was recently big in the news sphere, the media sphere, that had two polarizing positions was the ongoing Israel conflict that sparked earlier in 2021. And you can clearly see on news feeds, at least I can clearly see on news feeds, People from different identity categories, such as Arab versus Jew, posting content from accounts that are clearly directed towards someone of their identity category, like at Jew News or at Arab World. Echo chambers, they're digital bubbles of filtered information surrounding a topic. So I think that personalized content algorithms reduce agency by making these decisions, and I also think that in this reduction of agency, we're seeing a fragmentation of social reality because people are being placed into the distinct reality streams. And this is causing certain social tensions. Can you speak on that? Well, I think what you're saying is valid. I think we have to be careful about causality because I think and I'm not saying this about you, but some stuff I've read, I feel may overstate the role of algorithmic organization and understate other social changes and social mechanisms and so on. So political dispute actually has a long history in societies, and let's just say in capitalist societies, in a France, for example, newspapers, and, and I'm just using this because it was particularly clear in France or in Italy, newspapers in the old days when people used to get a newspaper, either buy it on the street or get it delivered to your house, there was a communist paper, there was a socialist paper, there were moderate center papers and right-wing papers, and you tended to get the newspaper that fit with your uh, ideology and your ideology tended to not be simply an individual thing, but often had to do with community and class. And so in working class communities, the communist paper was the one that you would see around l'humanité, uh, you know, and, and so on in different neighborhoods uh, and different cultural configurations. You had an appetite for different press and that came out of long histories of conflict. That didn't just come out of nowhere. That came out of essentially building movements and developing capacity to think collectively and to think through the problems from the point of view of where people were so that um, 
radical politics of the left in working class communities. Uh, that was true. You know, and you could look and see who they elected, what what publications they tended to have. There tended to be things like in mining communities in Britain, uh, community libraries run by the union or by associations in the area. People developed capacities to think collectively and to think against the dominant system. And that has a long history. And it means that when you meet someone uh, from another class community perspective, you often don't have common views of the events uh, that are going on. And in a way that was simply a reflection of a different insertion into the world. It's not simply that, you know, like the world does look different if you are a wealthy owner of a company or a manager and if you work there. The, it, so many different things look different. The way you fit into school, what you do in your breaks, all, all kinds of things look different. And and in many ways, the political organization was largely about naming what the world looks like from this perspective. And so the, I, I don't subscribe to the idea that there should be a reasonable center that we all agree on and that algorithms are making us irrational by feeding us the stuff that we already are biased towards. Because I believe that actually a lot of those collective forms of analysis of the world, where we end up sharing products of shared analysis with each other, are extremely valuable in transformative processes that people need because the schools, the dominant press, I mean, if you take Israel, for example, the Canadian government, the dominant voice in schools, the dominant voice in media and so on, is definitely pro-Israeli, un, relatively uncritical of Israel, and echoes in many ways views about Canadian relationships with Indigenous people here. And so there's real connections. And it's not a simple Jewish-Muslim thing. Personally, as a Jewish pro-Palestinian activist, uh, I'm not the only one. There's lots of people, and there's a whole history in Jewish communities of um, arguments against Jewish suprematism uh, and its expression in the Israeli state. Uh, so I, I think we have to be a little careful about overstating the role of al algorithmic organization in this and to, to, to see it as, a, as a, a development of histories of political organizing. What's happened though in the last 20, 30 years that I think deserves further attention is that a lot of those previously existing forms of political organization have disaggregated and don't exist in the same way anymore. Unions are much weaker. Working class communities have been largely dissolved by factories shutting down and so on. So if you look around Toronto, if you look at um, the area that used to be the massive Massey Ferguson plant along King Street, it's now condos. Uh, and I'm old enough to actually remember when it was a Massey Ferguson plant. And when it was a Massey Ferguson plant, there were a lot of unionized workers who worked there. They lived in some of the surrounding communities. They, they through the union, through working together through their neighborhoods, um, developed an ethos in the world. And that the, the dissolution of forms of work is not just about the loss of jobs, but it's also with the loss of an ethos, a community, and so on. And a lot of those communities have, have disaggregated, have dissolved in different ways. 
And the new forms of community and resistance haven't, I mean, there's elements of it, certainly around things like Black Lives Matter, Indigenous resurgence and so on, but the, it hasn't developed to the same extent. And so that idea of conscious communities of struggle and opting in and out of conscious communities is less there. And instead we're kind of sorted into communities that we're not opting into. So I do, I, I'm not saying that that doesn't matter at all. And, and people are much less aware of that. I think that there's a way that that open political disputation leads to critical thinking in the best sense, because you're aware that others disagree with you and that you are in a situation where you've got to understand, you know, like a good unionist understands what the, the manage, what management's thinking, because you need to counter what they're thinking in a situation where we're not engaging with each other in that way, then we simply become kind of units out there and there's not a collective structure, there's not a deliberateness around it. And I think that's much more what I'm worried about is the lack of deliberateness, the lack of the development of capacity for, for critical thinking that happens much less in school, I believe, than through collective organizing to meet goals in different ways. And I believe that when there's a kind of an organized opposition in society, the way a mass trade union movement is, for example, management has to think more sharply because they're being countered on the other side. And we as activists have to think more sharply. And right now, there's certainly moments of movement, but overall that mapping of society in terms of those divisions is much less sharp and the level of critical thinking for various reasons, I would argue has fallen uh, in that situation. Um, we're not being equipped th through community activism. And so in that situation, I certainly understand what people are saying that we tend to be exposed to certain information, not others. And I agree with you that it's bad faith in the sense that technologies that pretend to be about serving us are in fact about serving the owners. And to me, that's the real bad faith is that the, the technologies that succeed are not the ones that they do not succeed because they're the ones that most directly meet our needs, but because they're the ones that are most profitable. And it's the, the ability of Facebook to make money that drives its growth, not the fact that it meets our needs fundamentally. And what gets developed out of Facebook is the, is the most commercializable aspects of it and the least commercializable aspects of it are stunted. And that's true in terms of all these kinds of, the way that the algorithms work on Google, Google being, you know, where that's all about advertising, but it gets presented as if it's just simply easing our search for information uh, as opposed to an old fashioned phone book. So, I, I mean, it's a fairly long-winded answer. I hope that it makes some sort of sense. So I, I, I would argue, I don't think we should short shrift it by saying it's simply that people who would otherwise find a reasonable middle are exposed to limited sources of information and therefore develop biases. It's much more about how do we develop the critical thinking of people to actually make deliberate choices about those things. And the other thing that worries me now is that even the idea that facts exist is being undermined. And where I think, you know, one of the best of sociology argues, we always under, we always need to understand that facts 
are constructed as such, and yet they're constructed on something. Um, you know, so it's true that we interpret things and name them as facts, and yet you bump into a fact quite literally like a wall and can't walk through it. Um, facts have an existence outside of us, but now people are talking about, you know, like I, I'm in, in my, a class I taught last year, uh, one student actually wrote on the chat, but I don't believe in COVID. And you think, well, that's not an article of faith. You know, like uh, that to me, you know, like there's lots of, uh, I've in my life engaged a lot in debates around health and wellness and misinterpretations and misnamings. And so I'm certainly not trying to say the, the health system is simply an objective naming of actual processes. There's all kinds of elements of social regulation built into the health system. But the idea, I don't believe in COVID, that's the wrong category of thinking. And I do think that we're, a lot of people are going around with the wrong categories of thinking and being given perspectives that don't challenge them. And the question is, so in which situation would people accept being challenged? And to me, a lot of that is about community engagement where there's something on the line and where it actually matters to us. So let's think about your example in France where there are three different types of papers that are, or five different types of papers that are all marketed to different classes. And I mean, to me, that's all different pockets of information streams, but still at some point, somebody has to express their agency within that range of five different papers. You know, like when they purchase a paper, they express their agency. They're saying, this is who I am. This is the type of information stream that most suits me. But in digital space, that decision, it doesn't happen. It, it, the decision is already made for you based on algorithmic profiling, based on factors that you probably don't even really know are involved in building a consumer profile on someone like you. They're applied before you even look to see what papers are available, right? So. I think agency is reduced in a different way. And I think about something like Black Lives Matter and how we now know how a social group like BLM was used as a misinformation amplification location. So there's research into how Russian foreign intelligence agencies were creating fake BLM Facebook pages and profiles and fake white supremacy pages and profiles on Facebook and they were interacting across boards so like BLM pages were acting with white supremacy groups and vice versa they were organizing events so to me it's like once you know that something like that is happening in the digital space it's bad faith to trust a social movement like that I mean, how can we move forward in trusting the holisticness of BLM when we have distinct evidence showing it's a movement that's being propagated by foreign influences? So, I mean, the first thing I'll say is uh, there's actually a, there's a long history of blaming political mobilization on foreign agents. And... In the early 20th century, there's all kinds of examples of, including after the Winnipeg General Strike, for example, in Winnipeg, 
of people who had moved to Canada from elsewhere, especially uh, Eastern Europe or Southern Europe, being expelled, deported, uh, because they'd taken part in strikes and agitation and mobilization that had to do with workers' rights and uh, were seen as foreign agents. And people blamed, once the Soviet Union started, all kinds of agitation and so on, on Soviet intervention. And there was some, I'm not denying that uh, the KGB existed and that the Soviets did put money into certain kinds of, but overall, I think it's a way to explain away the mass dissatisfaction with society and to explain away activism. And I think underlying it can be an assumption that people are kind of sheepish and it's a question of who controls them. Is it us or them? And we want to control them, but they are. And those those foreign agents are controlling them much better than it's us because we you can trust us, not them. And I, I think that people aren't so sheepish. I think people are making choices. Black Lives Matter, to me, the mass mobilization on the streets of millions of people was not simply uh, an invention of the internet. It, what the internet did in some ways was allowed people to mobilize a little more quickly and effectively, but it's not that different from what happened after the assassination of Martin Luther King uh, in 1968, where there was a massive mobilization. And what happens is that you get a moment where people say, after years and years of atrocities aimed against them, we're not going to take it. And in this case, the combination of the way COVID was shaped, was amplifying the racist divisions in society. The, the way that uh, racialized communities were affected disproportionately by COVID and the services were less available. And the long history of police violence came together in a moment where people said, this is, I, we, we can't take it anymore. And I think that the kind of online actions of agents for sure has a distorting effect and is unfortunate. And I think uh, we need to be building organizations that help people develop the capacity to assess information much more critically and so on. But I think we also shouldn't be disproportionate in assigning, in meaning that that means that we can dismiss whole social movements and so on, saying they're a product of this kind of manipulation, as opposed to thinking that that's a pretty marginal activity compared to the other things. And I think, you know, like, even in this day of digital, mass digital information, I still think we underplay the importance of things like conversations with trusted others, whether those take place face-to-face -face or on Zoom or through different kinds of mediation, text messages, whatever, that it's actually often trusted others who are key. That if you look at demonstrations, for example, most often demonstrations are not simply a coming together of individuals, but they're often group people bringing each other in clusters. And often to lead up to that cluster, there's been discussions with trusted others. And I think we need to understand more the way that people organize themselves socially, share information and develop a worldview with trusted others in their life. And how that gets at times organized with great power and other times disaggregated 
um, by the dominant social relations, by changes in jobs, changes in, you know, uh, all kinds of things like that. And I think that it's really important to understand the role of social media in that. And I'm not trying to take away from the importance of that, but I think it can also be accorded disproportionate importance based on a model that says we're all just these atoms floating out here. And the only thing that connects us is information in the digital form. And I think that that, even though there's elements of that that have happened for various reasons in this society, and I think that's something we need to explore more, how we've become more that way over the last 30, 40 years, I don't think it's true to the way people actually live that their most important relationships are with trusted others who they give, uh, they, they, those relationships get undue attention and so on, and are very important to the development of a critical imagination and so on. Uh, who are trusted others? Could a trusted other be, uh, say, a celebrity that someone's never met, but someone has potentially close admiration from by seeing them on screens or consuming images or sounds of them in other form of media? I, I think that's something that we need to explore more. I think the question about whether we essentially have developed fetishized forms of relationship where celebrity begins to have disproportionate importance, partly because our own social base has been undermined. You know, if you look at the way as tuition fees go up, students have to work more hours to continue going to school. And that there's straightforward studies that show that. And so through my time as a professor, I've seen students engage more and more in paid labor. There were always a lot of students who were engaged in paid labor, but the number of hours that they're working is greater and greater. What does that mean? It means that they're less able to engage in community formation activities at school. And to me, one of the most, perhaps the most valuable aspect of a university education is the connections you make, is the development of yourself through that kind of community activity and so on. And quite simply, the, the way that pay has operated, the way that tuition fees have operated and so on, has meant that students have less and less opportunity to engage in that kind of community formation. If we don't have the same opportunity to do that directly, then we end up with these substitutes of community formation where it's um, around the magnified image of a celebrity and the cult of, I mean, you know, there's always been some of that. Uh, I'm old enough, I'm of the generation that uh, I knew deadheads and stuff who would follow the Grateful Dead around. And so there's all, you know, uh, concerts are a pretty amazing thing. Liveness is a pretty amazing thing. There's a lot of things we need to explore around why and how celebrity works. But I do think that in a society where we're dealing with a kind of social disaggregation that we need to understand more, then things like celebrity begin to have disproportionate influence on us because the, the mediation of our immediate reference group is less there for us because our immediate reference group has been dissolved by overwork and exhaustion and geographical dispersion and so on. Well, I would just like to add, I mean, digital integration, it's inevitable as 
as technologies that can mediate information become smaller and more accessible and we spend more and more time with them because they're such great tools it seems that the proximity to these influences will will become unavoidable i, I think that's probably true i think the other question that i that constantly plagues me is but why are we spending more time with it right. and i do wonder about the extent to which exhaustion because of overwork the lack of alternative time and space the form of housing that means that people are often isolated in either family units or on their own you know there's there's so many different things that mean that that we are our kind of bonds are weakened by the very organizational society that we're in and that leaves us more open to that kind of proximity because yeah there's absolutely no doubt that our self-image is more and more cast in the mirror of images that we we actually compare ourselves to images uh, rather than to ourselves or each other and so on and that that has huge impact and and that social media and various forms of digital information are an important part of that i don't think that started it i think that there's a long history of it that we need to understand of um uh but but i but I, i'm not denying the importance of that so about a hundred years ago now charles cooley described his looking glass self theory in the following i am not who i think i am i am not who you think i am i am who i think you think i am i i think that that is a nice loop back to where we started in terms of symbolic interactionism and i i, I think that it's something that we need to understand more about is the complex ways that we look in mirrors and what we see and don't see and what that leads to in terms of our our understanding of ourselves and our understandings of each other and yeah i i, I completely agree well alan thanks uh thanks for meeting with me today that's this has been so useful to help illustrate some of the concepts that I'm using to help talk about bad faith cycles uh, when I'm talking about about bad faith cycles. This was really great and it's always nice to chat with you. Oh good, because I, I, I can be a little bit uh, verbose and professor-like and stuff at times and, uh, and I, I know that my views challenge yours in some ways around this stuff and but I think that's good. Great, so take care Alan. We should uh, we should meet just to uh, just to chat again soon. I'd like that. Okay, great. Take care. Okay, great. Bye bye. I would again like to thank Alan for participating in this project. He can speak with authority on a lot of the concepts that are foundational to the way that I think about bad faith cycles. Hopefully we can get Alan back on for other related discussions in the future. As always, I hope that you got something out of this podcast. And tune in next week for another episode of the Bad Faith Cycles Pod.